back to Peace in Their Time, episode 34, Anything for Attention. By the back half of 1920, Hitler dominated the nascent Nazi party and had started laying the groundwork that would see him become the Fuhrer of fascist myth. And one thing that any Fuhrer needed was devotees and sidekicks. I know I introduced Eckhart in Rome last week, but Eckhart was an older fellow and not long for the world, plus he helped Hitler create his own myth and thus was able to see through it. And Rome at this point was a much more important person in the far right, so neither were real sidekick material. It wasn't long, though, before Hitler attracted a coterie of misfits that would hang on his every whim. An early one he picked up was a young Rudolf Hess, the son of a well-off merchant. Hess had spent his youth split between Germany and Egypt, where his father did his business. It was there that Hess developed a liking for the English people, Egypt being a British protectorate at the time. That affection would be a catalyst for one of the stranger incidents of World War II, which will come up later down the road. He fought in World War I as well, being wounded in both France and Romania. The end of the war left Hess badly adrift. His dad's Egyptian business was gone for good, and he himself had been blown halfway to hell for a lost cause. The simplistic certainty that Hitler's message offered, which cast blame of all failures onto an inhuman other, greatly appealed to Hess, and he was quickly acting as Hitler's right-hand man. Hess was never a great thinker or leader. He existed to be commanded and probably could be ignored entirely from this accounting, as his personal accomplishments were so few. But from here on out, he's pretty much always there by Hitler's side like a shadow, which was perfect for Hitler, as he always liked quiet obedience in his subordinates. That autumn, Hitler also came into league with a pair of brothers who had also decided to end their flirtations with socialism and become full-time nationalists. Gregor and Otto Strasser in those days had their own Free Corps unit, and had found themselves adrift politically. And in case you're familiar with the terms Strasserism or Strasserite that have re-entered the political discourse, yes, it's these two that are the original source of those terms. Both brothers shared an anti-capitalist stance, but only insofar as it supported German interests. Their biggest fear and motivation was the nation coming under the influence of Marxists, and ergo, to the Russians. They found themselves in Munich, where they were approached by Ludendorff and Hitler to join their cause. Ludendorff explained to them that in the emerging far-right scene, there would be two leaders. He himself would command the paramilitary groups and underground Free Corps units, while Hitler would be the political figurehead. Working for them, the Strassers could put their leadership and organizational talents to their best use. The brothers were initially unimpressed, with Otto and Hitler especially taking an immediate dislike to each other. But Gregor agreed to join the Nazis based on the word of Ludendorff. And just to provide some clarification as to just what Ludendorff was doing here, after the Kapusch fell apart in March 1920, he fled to Bavaria. Ludendorff himself was big into the Volkish movement and commanded the respect of the various paramilitary groups, many of whom were hiding out down south too. So the region was where his people were. The general did not commit to any one group, like, say, the Nazis, but acted as a kind of rallying figure and go-between since nobody else on the extreme right had his name recognition. So after less than a year of political activity, Hitler's increased visibility and reactionary networking was paying off. Another piece of this disturbing puzzle fell into place in December 1920, when the Volkischer Beobachter, a nationalist, anti-Semitic newspaper that, as I introduced last week, was basically the New York Times of Munich's fringe right, was about to go out of business. 
Hitler figured it would be a great idea for the Nazi party to have its own paper, and so Drexler and Eckhart put up some of their own money, called in some of their social contacts, put up their money, and even got the army to throw in some cash under the table. Hitler now had his propaganda organ, and the paper would run all the way up to April 1945, before ceasing publication during a sudden downturn in the market. The past year had been a remarkable one for Adolf Hitler. The end of the war had almost left him a broken shell, and now he was the face of an expanding political party, rubbing shoulders with circles of people in Munich he never would have had he remained a postcard artist. But he was very much a Munich fixture. For all his notoriety, he didn't have a national presence. The leaders of the Nazi party, and keep in mind that at this point Hitler was still refusing the actual responsibility of becoming a formal recognized leader, were aware of this shortcoming, and some cast about elsewhere in the Volkish movement to rectify that. The easiest solution to expand their national footprint was to merge with another far-right group, and the name that the party leadership kept going back to was the DSP, or the German Socialist Party. Don't confuse it with the SPD, although I'm sure the DSP's leadership thought they were being very cute there. The DSP was another group that borrowed the socialist name in order to score some working-class appeal, but make no mistake, they put the German part of the title first very deliberately, and again refer back to the fascist penchant to adopt any tactic to get their foot in the political door. Anyway, the DSP was really just another micro-party, but it was one with some presence and connections in the north of the country, something the Nazis wholly lacked. The sticking point, though, was Hitler. He was certainly making moves in the Volkish circles. I've already mentioned his networking efforts and the fact that he was running with Ludendorff to try and make a loose alliance in the overall movement. Hitler was working to do it on his own terms, though. He was making those moves, not the party leadership. If they merged with another group, Hitler was the one to benefit least, as the Nazis would only be a segment of whatever larger organization resulted from the hypothetical merger and Hitler would not be able to domineer the party leadership to the same extent. So from 1920 and into 1921, he played a game with the leadership of his own party, constantly sabotaging their efforts to merge with larger groups, while keeping the appearance to the Nazi party's own growing rank and file that everything was fine. What kept Hitler in control was his charisma, and there would be no better time to stage a show of personal strength than the biggest Hitler performance yet. Early 1921 set in motion conditions that would charge up Hitler's appeal with the disaffected, as an ever-larger part of the population became disaffected with the Republic. The economy was still in a shambles, and hunger was rampant. And then news came that the Entente had settled on the amount of German war reparations. As you will recall, the 134 billion marks expected to be paid was met with violent indignation throughout the country. The people started becoming convinced that this was part of an effort to ruin Germany, and suddenly Hitler's ravings started seeming reasonable to an embittered and vengeful society. He called a snap speech at one of Munich's larger venues, the Circus Krone. On one day's notice, 6,000 people crammed in to hear him rail against the injustice of the Entente's reparations demands, as well as the German government's inability to resist them. The angry crowd burst into rapturous applause, which Hitler absorbed like an addict. This was his life now, and he committed himself fully. He worked on propaganda pieces and went from engagement to engagement throughout Bavaria, 
bringing his special touch to ever-larger crowds. There was certainly pushback, don't get me wrong. The local SPD and communists were well aware of him and despised him, as well as pretty much anybody who understood the threat of the far right and what it posed to German society. And as the Nazi party grew, the friction increased to street violence. This escalated to the point where the soldier element Hitler brought in early on got more and more organized in their efforts to not only protect the party members during meetings, but also take the fight to the left. While not an official group as of yet, this was effectively the start of the SA, or the Brown Shirts, as they came to be known, uh, which was a nickname based on their very simple uniforms. The Nazis were also protected by the cops, which saw them as a means to win the working class away from the socialists that they despised. At an even more influential level, the minister-president Gustav Ritter von Kahr, who led Bavaria almost autonomously from the rest of the nation, also made his peace with Hitler. Carr was an old conservative and mistrusted the fascists, a feeling that was reciprocated, but both parties saw a use in good relations with the other. Carr would provide political and legal cover for the Nazis. The Nazis would suppress the left that Carr was so fearful of. This also meant that the Nazis were considered an actual political force to be reckoned with, at least in Bavaria. A shabby, futureless political party was now being received by the most powerful man in Bavaria. Not bad for a little over a year of effort. That summer, though, the tension between Hitler and the Nazi leadership would come to a head. Hitler wanted the party to focus on propaganda and agitation, which, not coincidentally, were the things he was good at and enjoyed. Many in the leadership, though, wanted to try their hand at a coherent platform in order to achieve some actual, you know, electoral success. This split drove a faction of the party's leadership towards once again merging with the DSP. Hitler successfully torpedoed all moves in that direction until the start of July 1921. On the first of the month, party leadership met with the DSP leaders again regarding a merger. Conveniently, Hitler was in Berlin, uh, doing some conferring among the far-right-aligned groups up there, and was not present. He got wind of what was happening back home, though, and returned to Bavaria on the 11th. Everyone met up in the city of Augsburg to try and come to some final agreement. Hitler had other plans, and went into one of his shouty rages, probably expecting that he would be able to cow his own leadership. But Hitler quickly shut up when he realized that nobody had been phased by his tirade. The merger negotiations continued, with him fuming off to the side, and eventually he left the meeting in a huff. He resigned from the Nazi party that day. Three days later, he delivered an open letter to the party, demanding that if he were to return, it would have to be as the recognized, undisputed leader, dare I say, the Fuhrer. The party at first held firm against him, but Eckhart went to bat for his protege and convinced Drexler to cave into the demands for absolute power within the party. The rationalization was that it was obvious Hitler was the only thing that had caused the party to grow, and that there probably wasn't much of a future without him. So the Nazi leadership agreed to his demands and brought him back in. On July 29th, Party Congress affirmed Hitler as chairman, with the position having absolute control over the party. By this time, too, he had solidified a private army in the proto-SA. Remember that the Entente had banned paramilitary groups, correctly seeing them as shadow armies in a future conflict. This meant that the SA had to be organized as the sports group of the Nazi party. Yes, the Nazi party had its own physical fitness organization. 
They all dressed in matching brown uniforms. Originally more of a bodyguard gang, they were given increased organization when Rome and Captain Erhart, who was hiding out in Bavaria after the Capuche, lent their talents to the group. The new muscle would be put to terrible use in the back half of 1921. One notable incident in September saw Hitler and the SA breaking up a meeting of Bavarian separatists who dared try and get in their way. And another was in November, when the SPD arrived at a beer hall early in anticipation of wrecking the speech Hitler was scheduled to give. Hitler sent in his brown shirts, had the doors locked, and started giving the speech anyway. As soon as the socialists started getting rowdy, the SA broke out the clubs and assaulted the crowd. These types of incidents went on for most of the first half of 1922. The Nazis had built up enough of a reputation that trouble followed them, and on the occasion when it didn't, they stirred it up. They followed the doctrine that all press was good press, but such activity did have a certain plateau of effectiveness. And Hitler wasn't quite invincible himself. His little stunt with the Bavarian separatists landed him in jail from late June to July of 1922. And while the SA were an accomplished group of street hooligans, their numbers were dwarfed by similar organizations elsewhere. In August, there was to be a nationalist meeting in Munich, and tens of thousands of thinly-veiled paramilitaries and their leaders descended on the city. The SA counted 800 men, while another group brought 30,000. Hitler was making a name for himself, but at the moment, he was just that, a name. The attendees discussed plans for a push on the 25th of the month, with the large nationalist groups agreeing to return to Munich then. Hitler promised 5,000 of his own followers on the appointed day that could participate. Word of the plot got out, though, and Bavarian authorities threw up travel restrictions to prevent the larger groups, which had not gone unnoticed marching through town just 10 days earlier, from assembling. What wound up happening was 5,000 excited Nazis assembling in a large beer hall expecting to march. The cops showed up, though, and after taking some time to wail on a group of communist workers who had showed up to oppose the march, they gently told Hitler to stand his group down and that nobody else was coming. Sullenly, Hitler took the stage to give a basic talk and then told everybody to go home. This was probably the first real-deal public humiliation that Hitler had suffered, and he did not take it well. The next time an opportunity for a push presented itself, he was going to pull the trigger. He would regroup in good time, though. There was a German Day nationalist celebration on October 14th in the north Bavarian town of Coburg, which he received an invitation to from the local Volkish groups. Hitler accepted and brought along 600 stormtroopers. The cops warned him in advance not to march as a unit or carry party banners or emblems, instructions which Hitler specifically told his group to ignore. When the local left workers welcomed him with hostility, he sicked his goons on them, and the cops wound up joining in with the brown shirts. The streets were his, and German Day was his. This propaganda win sealed a further agreement, this time with a Volkish group based out of Nuremberg. This particular outfit was led by a man named Julius Stryker, who was infamous for being so anti-Semitic that even Hitler and the Nazis were put off by him sometimes. Stryker's personal paper, Der Stormer, was even occasionally banned during Nazi rule, simply because his anti-Semitism was of such a crank variety that it was embarrassing even to the majority of Nazis. Now, though, he brought the Nazis into northern Bavaria, and the addition of his group more than doubled party membership. The move was one step forward, one step back, though, as it created a power base within the party outside of Munich. Hitler was very much so a Munich personality, and while he had total control of the party there, 
He couldn't exercise his demagogue energy from a distance, something that was going to trouble him for years to come. Hitler also made one further acquisition to his inner circle, another war hero. This time, though, it was a really high-profile war hero. Hermann Goering had been an ace pilot for the Germans during the war, and had been awarded the highest possible decoration, the Poile Marite, an award so old it stretched back to when the Prussian nobility spoke French instead of German. He had served with Baron von Richthofen, a.k.a. the Red Baron, and had taken over his fighter group when the Baron was killed in action in 1918. Goering was the kind of guy with a strong personality and no real convictions beyond a craving for adventure and power. In the public eye, he was a dashing figure, and actually fit the picture of a war hero and man of action, a far cry from the bloated mess he would descend into later on. He had carried on an affair with a noblewoman who he married in early 1922, after she had secured a divorce from her husband at the time. Now he looked around for a cause to fight for, and in 1922, he found it with Hitler. Goering was instantly bored with the intellectual approach that most politicians used, or appeals to a moral ideal from the well-meaning populists. Hitler, on the other hand, promised fighting, and Goering wanted to fight. It didn't really matter who, or if it was fair, he just wanted a struggle to engage in. He wasn't a man brimming with hate like so many of the others. He himself had Jewish friends, even. But the ennui of civilian life was intolerable to him. He walked into the shabby office the Nazis used as their HQ, and the star-struck staff shuffled Hitler out from a back room to greet him, probably not quite believing at first that someone from so high in society was joining their knowingly rough-neck group. Hitler welcomed him and placed him in charge of the essay. Another important acquaintance that Hitler made was Ernst Hofstangl, a half-American photographer. He came from an upper-class background on both the German and American sides of his family, and was in fact directed to Hitler via a U.S. Army captain who was sent by the American State Department to size up the emerging leader and gather details on him. The captain had been impressed with Hitler's oratory and considered him comparable to Mussolini, who had taken power in his march on Rome just a year earlier. He asked Hofstangl if he could drop in on a speech and provide a second opinion. Hofstangl did so and was instantly supportive of the nationalist agenda Hitler was espousing. He approached Hitler at his table after the speech and introduced himself. Hitler saw an opportunity in another upper-class contact, and soon the two became something akin to friends. I say akin because their relationship was close, but complicated. Hitler became a common dinner guest at the Hofstangl household, and he would have long conversations on any number of topics. Hitler especially loved listening to Hofstangl play the piano. The class difference was very real, though, with Hofstangl looking down on Hitler's poor dinner etiquette, his simplistic view of the world, and uneducated opinions on art and culture. Hofstangl was, in short, kind of a snob. It probably didn't help that Hitler developed an obvious crush on his wife, all the while refusing to get a partner of his own, creating an often awkward third-wheel situation. Hofstangl looked past that, though, for a time at least, and focused on Hitler's populist energy. It would also be his influence that Hitler started working in dramatic hand gestures as rhetorical devices. If you see old footage of Hitler and pick up on him talking with his hands, that was from Hofstangl's instruction. So, by 1923, Hitler felt momentum swinging in his favor again. The party was bigger, it was stronger, and there was a new international incident to fuel his message. The Entente had set the terms of their reparations payments at the start of 1921, and by 1923, the German government had defaulted on those payments. The French began their Ruhr occupation. 
You will remember that the German government responded with a strategy of non-cooperation, which shut down much of the national economy. It also started printing money to meet the budget shortfalls, which resulted, which got that nightmarish round of hyperinflation going. Once the crisis started dragging on into 1923, and the human misery really kicked in, the desperate started turning to more extreme political alternatives. The crisis caused a stir in the underground paramilitary community as well. The entire point of all these organizations was to have a strike force to back up the army when the next round of conflict came. Well, it seemed like the next round was there, and the various groups needed to mobilize. Government, though, did not turn to armed confrontation, and the army leadership under General von Sicht knew damn well they couldn't win a war at that moment. So, most of the militias were idle, but their memberships were spoiling for a fight. The leadership of these groups started talking again about what they could do. And by what they could do, I mean launch a push. And since Hitler was connected with Rom and Ludendorff, he was brought in. Their collective problem was that nobody had any actual plan on how to move forward with their whole tear-down-the-republic agenda. The armies in action confirmed that there would be no fight, but such a thought could barely be comprehended by the rank and file. Their country had been invaded by the French, and the economy had totally fallen apart. They had to act in some way. Hitler attempted to divert tensions by organizing an armed attack on the socialist May Day celebrations. Uh, typically, socialists and communists would spend the day marching and celebrating the cause of the worker, but Hitler intended to attack them in the streets. And not with clubs, either. He planned on rifles and machine guns. He approached General Otto von Lossa, who was the commanding officer of the army's units in Bavaria, and asked for guns to be distributed to his men. Also, wasn't really concerned with the lives of the leftists in Munich, but he was concerned with the prospect of thousands of armed Nazis afterwards, so he turned Hitler down the evening before the May Day March. Hitler tried to improvise and did get Rom to cough up some rifles, but not the heavy weaponry he had hoped. 2,000 armed men showed up for the attack, but were met by police and army troops unwilling to let them start a bloodbath in the streets. The state troops surrounded the Nazis, and Captain Rom awkwardly approached Hitler. He told his friend that he was under orders to take the rifles back and send everybody home. Gregor Strasser defiantly called for a charge, but Hitler swatted the suicidal idea down. The Nazis returned the guns and shuffled away. May Day festivities proceeded normally. This moment was a huge blow to him. Last year, he got everybody together to stage a push, but back down on the same day, and now he actually had an armed group on the streets, but was effortlessly disarmed by the state's forces. And by Rom, no less. There was also this small issue in that Hitler was actually on probation. Remember, he had spent a month last year in prison due to his little dust-up with the rival group. By all rights, Hitler should have been in major legal trouble. But the Justice Minister of Bavaria was a man named Franz Gertner, and he was a man of far-right sympathies, and would in due course be Hitler's Minister of Justice all the way to his death in 1941. He ensured that Hitler would not be tried for the incident, and this won't be the last time that Gertner goes to bat for Hitler either. The May Day incident, though, did signal a slowdown in Hitler's activity. He accompanied Eckhart, Hofstengel, and Drexler on a little vacation to the, to the Bavarian Alps for part of the month, staying at a resort town called Berchtesgaard. He fell in love immediately with the landscape and made a mental note to look into property in the area. For the moment, though, his dismal failure of a revolution stuck with him, and he started acting erratically. He would march around with a whip and denounce the decadence of society and compare himself to Jesus, scourging the temple. 
He would do this in front of other vacationers outside the group of Nazis, by the way. Even to his compatriots, Hitler was acting off his rocker. Hofstengel probably deduced the underlying cause and resolved to get Hitler back in the action so as to put his uh, creative energies to more productive use. And as conditions in Germany got worse, so too did Hitler's craving for drastic action. Next week, Hitler will convince himself that he can pull off a push on his own initiative. I know I covered the Beer Hall push in broad strokes during the normal German series, but that was, at best, a sketch. And since the event was central to the Nazis' own mythology about themselves, I'll be doing a play-by-play of that cold, dreary evening. Don't be afraid of the repetition, though. It's a comedy of errors almost the whole way through, and the deep dive is well worth it. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. (laughs) 